Hey there, all you cool cats and kittens. So welcome to the third episode of Miss Fitzgerald's World History Podcast. Uh, We're going to be talking today about decolonization and apartheid in Africa. So our episode today is going to focus mostly on post-World War II Africa, what it looks like as they're trying to break away from European powers. Um, We're going to talk about the system of apartheid and see what's going on with that. What does it mean? How did it work? Why was it a bad thing? Um, And that's pretty much it. So I would maybe recommend taking out that study guide uh, for your quiz on Friday and getting ready to follow along. As we've discussed previously, the Indian independence movement caused a massive shift in the global understanding of the role and impact of European colonialism. By the end of World War II, calls for independence from oppressive and controlling European powers were being echoed throughout Asia and Africa. And within the next two decades, 37 different African nations would gain their independence. But it wouldn't come easily. Pan-Africanism was a powerful idea that began in the post-World War II struggle for African independence from European colonial powers. The ideology and movement is one that encourages the solidarity of Africans worldwide and is based on the belief that the unity of African people is crucial to the social, political, and economic progress of Africans. It also aims to uplift and unify all people of African descent. The Pan-African movement believes that all African countries and peoples are intertwined, and it was a great influence in the establishment of the All-African People's Conference. In this conference, which met three times between the years of 1958 and 1961, the leaders of the nationalist and anti-colonial movements pledged their unity and support for African independence. Some leaders, such as Jomo Kenyatta, Kwame Nkrumah, Leopold Senghor, and Julius Nyeri, significantly promoted the ideology of pan-Africanism. These leaders argued that the driving cause of nationalism on the continent of Africa must be the desire to remove foreign colonial powers from Africa entirely. They demanded for complete self-rule and independence for all African nations. The road post-African independence was not an easy one for several reasons. African leaders now face significant political, economic, and social challenges— Aside from outside pressure caused by the United States and the Soviet Union, who obviously each wanted to extend their influence as either capitalist or communist, new African leaders lacked significant resources to fully establish their new independent nations. When European officials left the continent after independence, they took with them their technical knowledge, financial resources, as well as their governing experience. Years of oppression under colonial rule left most Africans unprepared to take over political and economic roles. In some cases, the majority of the people in the country remained illiterate. Only a handful of Africans had the education and experience that they needed for tasks such as establishing an economic system or just running government. So how were they politically challenged? Well, the successes of the various African independence movements gives the impression that the people of these movements were truly united. But in actuality, these movements masked some pretty deep ideological and political divisions. New African leaders disagreed over all kinds of issues, like what the economic priority should be or what kind of relationship they should have with their former colonizing power. The various countries on the African continent were formed by the European colonies that took them over. 
meaning that many of these boundaries were carved out during the age of imperialism. Remember the scramble for Africa? With things like this, most African countries were incredibly diverse in the ethnicities, classes, religions, languages, cultures, and the Europeans kind of just came in with very little regard for cultural and ethnic communities that previously existed before they colonized. So in some cases like Nigeria and Congo, there were as many as 250 different ethnic groups that were quote-unquote united under one country. The patterns of European colonialism had established boundaries in Africa that would eventually prove to be a challenge to the Africans' ability to clearly unify against European control. During the colonial period, colonial officials had emphasized ethnic differences in hopes of weakening any unified opposition. The political groups that formed frequently competed for power along ethnic lines. Leaders of the opposing political groups played upon these differences and used them to gain power for themselves. In most cases, though, African leaders were the elites who used their political power to gain the support of other majority parties, which still left the poor and marginalized Africans with very little power. Economically, there were a few challenges as well. Many communities were left impoverished because of the colonial systems put into place, such as low-paid wage labor, loss of land, and heavy taxation. African leaders had also inherited economies that were dependent upon the international market. Former colonies had been limited to producing raw materials, and the colonies depended on European imports that they didn't produce at home, such as food and consumer goods. There wasn't a lot of infrastructure to support trade amongst African countries, and while many cities had piped water, hospitals, sanitation, and even schools, these were practically non-existent in rural regions. But the experience was not entirely negative. Many African nations instituted development programs to build new industries that would allow for them to sustain, sustain themselves, such as factories, oil refineries, and even bakeries. The new nations also formed regional trade and economic communities with one another in order to increase trade within Africa. Probably one of the most notorious examples of colonial suppression in Africa was the use of the apartheid system found in South Africa. Although South Africa had gained its independence from Britain in 1961, the system of racial segregation was used to suppress and control Black Africans until 1994. The word literally translates to separateness, and it was used by the National Party, which was a political party where the minority of the white South Africans maintained strict control over the Black African majority. Apartheid used a variety of methods to keep control over the Black African majority. They created pass laws, which were designed to control the movement of Africans under law, and they were enacted to ensure that there was a reliable source of cheap and docile African labor for the diamond and gold mining industries. Black Africans, however, were often compelled to violate these laws in order to find work that could support their families. This made arrests, fines, and harassment a constant threat to many urban Africans. In the 1970s and 80s, many Africans found in violation of past laws were stripped of citizenship completely, and they were deported to poverty-stricken rural, quote-unquote, homelands. And by the time the past laws were repealed in 1986, they had led to more than 17 million arrests. The National Party also established Bantu homelands. The law declared that all Africans were citizens of homelands rather than of South Africa itself. This allowed the white minority to attempt to declare that there were no black African citizens of South Africa, therefore eliminating their threat to their power. Over time, millions of South Africans lost their citizenship, and none of the homelands were recognized by any other country. 
1986, however, South African citizenship was restored to those people who were born outside the four, quote-unquote, again, independent homelands. After 1994, the homelands were reabsorbed into South Africa. Apartheid laws were also used by the South African government to forcibly move 3.5 million black South Africans in order to divide and control racially separate communities. Numerous vibrant multiracial communities that were completely destroyed by government bulldozers when these areas were declared white forced many blacks to have to remove to distant segregated townships. And sometimes they were 20 miles away from places of employment in the central cities. Basically, the past laws, Bantu homelands, and the removals of entire regions were the tactics that were used by the white minority South African government in an attempt to remove their threat to power. The people of South Africa were not unaware of the inequality that was being forced upon them by the white minority. Many resistance movements formed throughout the early 1900s, before South Africa even gained its official independence, and there were key organizations that focused strongly on bringing all Africans together as one people in order to defend their rights and freedoms. On January 8, 1912, chiefs, representatives of peoples and church organizations, and other prominent individuals gathered to form the African National Congress. They originally formed in the hopes of protesting the Harmful Land Act that was being forced upon the South Africans. Over time, however, the ANC would become one of the key anti-apartheid movements. Here is where we meet Nelson Mandela, a man who would undoubtedly have an impact on the use of apartheid in South Africa, but who got his start early by being involved in the ANC. Eventually, Mandela would become the first black president of South Africa to be elected in fully representative democratic elections. But before his presidency, he was a prominent anti-apartheid radical who had spent 27 years in prison for his involvement in underground armed resistance activities and sabotage. Through his long imprisonment, much of it spent in a cell on Robben Island, Mandela became the most widely known figure in the struggle against South African apartheid making it clear that his imprisonment only made him a more popular and necessary leader. Mandela was not the only notable figure in the anti-apartheid struggle. Desmond Tutu was an Anglican bishop who was honored with the Nobel Peace Prize for his opposition to South Africa's brutal apartheid regime. Tutu was commended by the Nobel Committee for his clear views and his fearless stance against apartheid. He had become a unifying symbol for all African freedom, freedom fighters, causing attention to once again be directed at the nonviolent path to liberation from apartheid and its oppression on the South African people. The Peace Prize Award made a huge difference to Tutu's international standing, and the broad media coverage that ensued made him a living symbol in the struggle for liberation. Tutu was someone who articulated the suffering and expectations of South Africa's oppressed masses, and many historians believe that Tutu's Peace Prize helped to pave the way for a policy of stricter sanctions or economic penalties against South Africa in the 1980s because of their use of apartheid. So how did nations outside of South Africa react to the system of apartheid? As early as November 1962, the United Nations General Assembly passed a non-binding resolution, which established the United Nations Special Committee Against Apartheid. This committee called for economic and other sanctions on South Africa until the apartheid system was removed. Unfortunately, all Western nations refused to join that committee. Despite this, the anti-apartheid movement continued within individual countries, like Britain, where resistance took the form of refusing to buy South African goods, refusing to support South African professors, and refusing to make business investments in South Africa until apartheid ended. 
the United States, who at this time was fighting its own battle for or against, depending on where you came from, racial equality. They stayed out of the conflict for another two decades. It wasn't until 1986 that the United States passed the Comprehensive Anti-Apartheid Act, a law which imposed political, economic, and social sanctions against South Africa, until it ended apartheid. Though the anti-apartheid struggle was ridiculed with violence and destruction, things began to change in August of 1989, when F.W. de Klerk replaced P.W. Botha as the state president. Upon obtaining power, de Klerk realized that the apartheid system was leading to both economic and political bankruptcy, and he began to put himself at the head of a radical change. De Klerk made some promises to end white domination in South Africa and relaxed some of the apartheid laws and released eight of the country's most prominent anti-apartheid political prisoners. In 1990, he decided to release Nelson Mandela, who had been in prison since 1963. Following the release, the two politicians worked together to bring an end to the policy of racial segregation. They agreed to prepare for a presidential election and to draw up a new constitution with equal voting rights for every population group in the country, including Black South Africans. Now, despite what you may think, not all African nations completely broke contact with their former rulers. In fact, foreign rulers maintained their influence in a variety of ways, some better than others. Some foreign governments offered loans to the African governments, who were strapped for cash. They then charged high interest rates, which would cause many of these new nations to fall further and further into debt. The foreign governments then used this debt to pressure new African nations into giving them trade agreements or business contracts that highly benefited them and didn't really benefit African nations. Foreign governments also offered technical knowledge and training to overwhelmed African governments who were completely unprepared with having a workforce that was able to support these types of new government. Sometimes foreign countries also got involved militarily by sponsoring military actions in order to put leaders into power, leaders who would specifically be beneficial to the European interests. But relationships with former colonial powers were not always negative. There are so many outstanding economic and cultural ties between some colonial powers and their former colonies that African nations chose some choose to remain trading partners on a global scale. All of this to say, the nations on the African continent have fought and continue to fight the worldwide belief that they are nations who only experience problems. In reality, the continent of Africa has experienced many successes and, and positive growth in the decades since colonialism ended. Many African nations also continue to contest the European version of colonial history. While European nations are often in favor of glossing over or airbrushing the cruelties and oppression their colonial control caused, Africans have taken to the task of demanding apologies and reparations for the harm caused by colonial power and control. As the people of Africa move forward from the harsh days of colonial rule, they also continue to prove that the legacies of colonialism cannot and will not determine their future. All right, my friends, thank you so much for listening today. That is all that I have for you. So there are a few things that you can do if you still have some questions. 
First off, if you're not really sure about some of the stuff that I talked about, or maybe something's really unclear, there's a few different ways that you could actually reach out to me. So first off, obviously you should check in on um, Classroom. You can leave comments on any assignments. You can shoot me an email. You can uh, Google like Hangout with me and just ask a quick question. Um, but in addition to that, I'm going to be sharing a link on the podcast posts that I put in Classroom that actually allows you to kind of like do like listener messages. So if there's something that I said, or you're reading and you're not really sure, and you need me to explain it, I can actually hear that message. And then I can respond to you. Um, and if I have enough questions, I'll create a secondary um, podcast, just kind of addressing the issues. Um, again, if you have questions, reach out. Other than that, take care of yourselves, stay inside. Um, if you're one of Miss DM's kids, definitely don't email me because I probably won't remember who you are. So definitely email Miss DM. Um, and just take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay inside, stay safe, eat a vegetable, take a nap, and I will see you soon.